turn with me now, if you would, uh, in your Bibles to the book of Judges, uh, Judges, uh, the 19th chapter, that's page 277, if you're using your blue Bibles. Thanks again for, uh, for your patience with me last week. I was told that I preached like Don Corleone. Um, um, <clears throat> uh, special introduction to this message, and then uh, kind of still that helped me out a little bit with the voice uh, and save it a bit. Uh, Stephen is going to read the text for us. But um, <clears throat> Carl Truman, um, one of my old professors, uh, calls this the most sinister chapter in the Bible. The most sinister chapter in the Bible. And there are good reasons for that. This passage is very, very real. It is both graphic and disturbing. <clears throat> one of the many things that separates God's true and holy word from the books of other religions, is that no other faith would ever record an incident like this. Uh, the event you're about to, uh, to, to read through is the repeated, violent, and sexual assault of a woman. And the text clearly attributes the guilt of this event to God's people. And I would say that uh, this morning, uh, if you're here today and you've been the victim of a sexual assault yourself, you can feel free to leave the sanctuary, especially if you've never heard of this passage before. It could be good to read it together, perhaps with a friend first, uh, or with Pastor Bob or myself, rather than be taken by surprise uh, if you're here, maybe even visiting for the first time, and, 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 and you've been through something like that. Um, feel entirely free to walk out at any time and, um, and, and study it when you're prepared later. Nevertheless, <clears throat> nevertheless, I also think that we should say that Scripture never requires any kind of trigger warning. Uh, even for our children, even for our youth, there is nothing unholy or impure about this word. Um, in addition, it is profitable for you and your youth for instruction, for correction, for reproof, and even simply as our family history, this chapter is valuable. In this case, not just knowing your checkered family history, but the darker, often unspoken family history of God's people. So I think it has tremendous value if you can be here in the sanctuary for it. Stephen, could you read it, please? This is Judges 19. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her, to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, 
be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And, they, and, the, and when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house. 
with her hand on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In, um, in 1983, the Russian, Russian dissident historian and novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave the Temple Lecture in London that year, and his title for the talk was Godlessness, the First Step to the Gulag. Godlessness, the First Step to the Gulag. The speech began this way. This is the way his speech began with no edits. <clears throat> More than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That is why all of this happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that unheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That is why all this happened. What is more, the events of the Russian Revolution can only be understood now, at the end of the century, against the background of what has since occurred in the rest of the world. And if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. Well, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen humanity forgetting God on multiple levels. We've seen what it looks like when a family does it. Micah's family. They knew God. They knew of God. They knew about God. But they forgot him. And they became idol worshipers. Then we looked last week at an entire tribe of Israel. What happens when they forget God, and begin practicing a false religion. This week we look at what happens when this happens to the church. All of God's people. What happens when all of God's people forget God and begin to practice the religion of the culture? Because that is what we're going to see today, the full canonization of all Israel. 
and what that looks like. And friends, this is, this is hard work to do this. Very hard work. A church like ours that, can, that goes under the name of Presbyterian, at first it seems kind of easy for us because we can look at those mainline Presbyterian churches and say as we drive by, they think they have God, but their minds have been tricked. They're mistaken. They're blinded. They don't understand anymore. They believe that they honor and revere God when in reality they disregard him as king and as Lord. It's easy to do because we cannot think of one thing perhaps that the culture accepts that the mainline church doesn't also accept. But it is a lot harder to see that slide in ourselves. It is a lot harder to see that slide in ourselves. And yet that is the very warning of Judges 19. Do you see what is happening? Among God's people, are your eyes open to see what is going on? Because forgetting God does not mean that you outright reject him. It doesn't mean that. Or that you become irreligious somehow. Or completely immoral, as we'll see in the passage. Or altogether atheistic. No, forgetting God means that God and his word rests upon you so lightly that your life, that, that, that God becomes so absolutely incidental to what you do, so incidental to what you think, that your religion has now become largely about what you like, about what you prefer, and about what you think of as right, that you cannot think of a way that a God that you would believe in and worship would ever disagree with you. How do we make sure that we see this happening in ourselves? Do we only have a God that only agrees with us all the time and therefore is basically us? Or do we have a heart that's open to, to, to a God who is so holy, he is going to disagree with us because we're not holy? How are we going to see? How are we going to have eyes to see? Yesterday, the, um, the elders and the deacons, we had a, a group retreat, and in honesty, uh, it tells me, I, I didn't really have an outline for this message yet as we're going through the retreat. I think when I get home, I really got to give some shape to all these ideas I have, and what's it going to be? And, and um, I, 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 I got to tell you, my, my outline today is crazy. <clears throat> but... Uh, but it came from looking out the window during the elders' retreat, so I'm going to claim that the Lord gave it to me. Um, I want to look today at, at sin as snow flurries, because it began to start, you know, snowing. Out there. It was pretty pretty when it first started. We're going to look at sin as snow flurries, when it just all looks nice. See? Then we're going to look at, at sin as a storm, where you're wondering, how bad is this going to get? And then we're going to look at sin as an actual weather system where you expect it, and that's just the way that it is. See if we can see the differences as they happen to us. So first, sin as, as snow flurries. We, we, you know, we start off in this chapter with relatively, uh, uh, you know, certainly in the book of Judges, with relatively sleepy sin. Unremarkable sin when it comes to the book of Judges. We have a Levite. Remember that the tribe of the Levites, they're responsible for Israel's worship. 
the, the Levites were charged with the spiritual health of the nation. A Levite is taken a concubine, no big deal. That you know, judges, that's you know, could be any chapter. Now, what is a concubine? Concubine is something like a second-class wife. Uh, Carl Truman says that everybody knows this concubine is not a first-class wife. Um, some people hear that word concubine and they think of something like a prostitute or maybe a courtesan. It's a bit more than that, although maybe only a little bit more. It's a position certainly higher than a mere slave, but lower than a full wife. Concubines, you could say, were half-partner, half-property. For instance, if a concubine had children, those children could have inheritance rights. However, concubines themselves could be inherited from a father to a son. In addition, upon the death of the concubine's husband, the concubine was called a widow. In fact, notice down here at verse 4 of chapter 19 that the concubine's father is referred to as the Levite's father-in-law. So she's definitely more than a casual girlfriend. Now that is what I mean by sort of sin as snow flurries. The, the patriarchs had concubines. Abraham, Jacob, Saul, King David, earlier in Judges, uh, Gideon, they all had concubines. Now, we could talk about why God seemed to allow this, and we should say that any deviation from the fundamental creation institution of marriage, of one man and one woman, uh, of, of one man as a husband, one woman as a single wife, united together for life, anything outside of that is a deviation from God's good and stated plan in Genesis 3. And we can be clear about this. The Bible, brothers and sisters, the Bible is not a children's book. Every time someone sins, every time someone violates uh, the law of God, there is, you know, like, like the Levite taking the concubine, a Greek chorus does not like pop out of nowhere and say, that's a sin, remember, that's a sin. It just, it, it just lets sinners sin, the Bible sometimes. So <clears throat> don't mistake, you see, uh, don't, don't, don't mistake every time you see someone perhaps take a, a, a concubine in Scripture with the idea that it's affirmed as a good thing or that you should have multiple wives and so on and so forth. Every time, actually, that someone has a concubine in Scripture, trouble surely follows. You just have to keep reading. But every time someone takes a concubine in Scripture, trouble surely follows whether it's a Gideon, a Solomon, an Abraham, or a David. Uh, these relationships are never blessed by God. So again, don't confuse God allowing something with the blessing of that same thing. It's simply the beginning, you see, of sin as snow flurries. It doesn't look like much. It looks okay. Some of the other nations do the same thing. And who gets hurt? Then we have more sin as snow flurries. This concubine, who we're told is from the tribe of Judah, so she's not some Gentile that got, got dragged in. She's from the tribe of Judah. It's gently dropped on us that she's unfaithful. Now this was, under the Old Testament, a capital offense. It was a, a death penalty offense, Leviticus 20, verse 10. Now, I know it's jarring to hear that, by the way, but in a sense, that makes my point. A sin that was once absolutely serious among God's people 
it is, after all, adultery, one of the Ten Commandments, that one should not commit adultery. A sin that was once so serious that has commanded the death penalty that it almost today, if we were to think about it, repulses us. Repulses us that that would ever be the penalty for that. But think. I want you to think. We have to think hard today. This is hard work. Maybe, just maybe, maybe the reason we are repulsed by that penalty is because we've treated sin like lovely snow flurries. Our culture, after all, calls adultery an affair. An affair to remember. Ah, our culture can call adultery a fling, like in summer. And without thinking of it, we begin to accept the culture's outlook on a covenant made by God, before God, and with witnesses. We have, as softly and slowly and as lovely as the flurries that fell yesterday, accepted that what God says should be forever, which no man should ever tear asunder, that it can be dropped or torn like it's mere tissue paper. And before we know it, as the sin as snow accumulates, we find ourselves saying, adultery should get the death penalty. Come on. It was just a fling. Because that is what happens. Slowly, progressively, gently, in a world where God is forgotten, And notice how the flurries continue to fall here. The concubine then abandons the marriage, and she goes back home. She goes back home to, presumably to Judah, to a place where she is, you know, where sin, as mere flurries, was likely taught to her because the family accepts her back in the house without a problem. Oh, the marriage is over? Okay. Now, again, this is hard to do. This is hard to do. But where are those areas in your life where you act both instinctually and apart from what God has to say about that area of your life? You know, it usually starts this way. You have an area of your life where just your agenda kicks in. God doesn't even will never get the first word because you have a part of your life that is so important to you that as soon as I say the category about you, you know, like you're an athlete, and I say athletics. You're an artist, and I say art. You are you are a student of law, and I say the law. And and suddenly your agenda for for what you want to accomplish and what you want to do and what you want to be in that area. And, and how you want to be accredited for it just rushes in so much that, that God doesn't, you know, he's just not even a part of the equation. Think about that part of your life that's that important to you. <clears throat> you come to church. You'd say you're religious. You pray for things. You may even read the Bible. Why? You do it because you want help meeting those goals in that area of importance for your agenda. You say, I do this for inspiration. I come to church, and I'm religious, and I'm a Christian because I need strength. I'm having trouble reaching my goals in that part of my life. In other words, you fit God into your agenda, into your existing belief where God is actually largely forgotten. You only call upon him when you need him. 
God is a concept where he is there to help you when you need it. So here is how you know. God as a concept is lighter than you. Your thoughts, your opinions, your impressions, your emotions about things, they're heavy. But God as a reality, and he's real, is heavier than you. When, you, when, when, when the real God comes into your life, when you actually get into the presence of the real God, these things finally give away in your life to his glory, and you can start to think rightly about these things. But here we have a whole people of God here in chapter 19 where that is not happening. The, the sin just, just sort of floats around. Where are those areas of your life where, 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 where God just seems sort of ephemeral and not, not very weighty to you at all? Because what you think is most important, that's when you're going to start to miss the sin that is, that's just going on, that is eating you away all the time. Second, sin is a storm. There is something, you know, as, as, you, as you listen to Stephen read through the, the passage, and if you were to outline it and... Uh, uh, actually attribute the amount of verses, let's say, to the attack at the end of the story versus all these other chapters on like the, 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 the father-in-law inviting the man for a meal again for another day, another day. It's very strange in the midst of this chapter. But if you don't understand the extent of the horror or properly interpret the horror at which the chapter ends, if you don't at least understand what the whole chapter is doing, you'll miss craziness of what's happening in the middle of this chapter. We have these two acts of hospitality right in the middle of the chapter. From verses 4 to 9, you have this near comical, lengthy section of the father-in-law extending the stay and extending the stay and extending the stay and like, like what's the big deal here? Extending the stay. What's that about? Whenever I'm around my father-in-law, uh, he is entirely hospitable, entirely what a, what a great gentleman my father-in-law is. I get the feeling that uh, when I arrive to see my father-in-law, he is genuinely glad to see me. But I'm also under the impression that every time we leave, he's a little glad to see me go. You know, that is, that is not the case here with the father-in-law in chapter 19. Is the father-in-law showing hospitality? Yeah. And, and, and biblically, that is a good thing. Um, it, we, we, again, on our, our, our retreat yesterday, we were doing a little study in hospitality as our, our, our meditation. We looked at Deuteronomy 10, where, where God self-describes himself as the hospitable God who gives meals to the, to the weak and the fallen and the lost and the oppressed. And of course, in Luke 7, there's a famous scene in Simon's house where Jesus rebukes Simon for not being hospitable. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my thirst. You gave me no food. Um, uh, you gave me no water for my feet either. She wiped her hair over my feet to clean me. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. So hospitality is all important in the scriptures and even in the context of the ancient Near East. But remember where we are. We are in a place where God is forgotten. 
You have to keep that contrast today. Yeah, there's all this stuff about hospitality. But we're in a place where people are doing it, in a place where God is entirely forgotten. The humor, it's a, it's a, it's a dark humor. The humor, the slow setup, is not the father-in-law doing hospitality because the Lord has been hospitable to a sinner like him. No, he's being hospitable, and he keeps inviting his son-in-law back every day so that the Levite, who takes part in the father-in-law's bounty, his obligation to his father-in-law increases, increases, increases. There's a quid pro quo going on here. In a society based on unbalancing reciprocal obligations, especially given the landless status of the Levites, they, they don't have their own land, and the sojourner status of the husband here, the father-in-law was steadily obligating the Levite um, to himself and to his household. Every day that the Levite stayed, he was accruing debt to his father-in-law. So not only would his daughter be taken home with him, but if he needs something later, he can get it. And the humor is this. The Levite wants to do everything that's right in his own eyes. He's trying to get out of there. And so is his father. He's trying to accrue debt. They're both doing what's right in their own eyes. In a place where God is forgotten. There's no love here. There's no honor here. There's no real hospitality here. This is an economic transaction. And, 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 and the son, of course, finally gets out of there. Now, that's what I'm getting at by this sort of sin as storm image. In a culture without God, a culture that has forgotten God, it's hard to discern motivations. I don't think I've ever read a passage of Scripture in, in all my years of doing pastoral ministry and preaching that has confounded so many commentators as this one. Because in the middle of this horror, there's all this hospitality, and hospitality is a good thing. And so they just do this, they, they just sort of leave the horror for a while to talk about all the hospitality that we as Christians should be doing, and we should. But it's how the hospitality connects to the horror that is so often missed. It's not easy to see. Here's, again, the key. Part of what makes this passage so profitable for us to look at is that it outlines the moral depths to which God's people can potentially descend. You see, there's a way that I've heard passages like this read or interpreted. Of course, the only passage that even comes close to this would be Genesis 19, the story of Lot and his daughters and the men of Sodom that surround the house. But there's a way that I've heard passages like this read and the application for God's people in the church is something like that. Is something like, stay away from that filth out there. Hmm? Stay away from that. Be hospitable to one another in the church, but out there, boy, the United States sure is going to the dogs. Keep coming to church. Keep signing up for our hospitality ministry. We need people to pick up those bagels. But avoid this group or that group, or vote for this party rather than that candidate to protect us, you see. Now, some of those things could be wise or good things to do, depending on what those things actually are. But that is not a viable reading of this passage. Be, care be, be careful of all that wickedness that's out there. The indictment here is of God's people. 
It's about us. It's about what can happen to us. So-called God followers. Baptized Christians. All of God's people. And the cynicism of last week, it's now over. You can't through hospitality sugarcoat or sugar on what happens here. This is not a passage about them out there, but a story of us in here in the heart. In other words, the story is nothing less than the than Sodom having moved into a Christian's heart without a Christian even seeing it because of the storm of sin that we now accept and how complicated the world seems. Now, I could go into all the depravity that we have here. I mean, that was a, I had a temptation of like uh, t- turning this, uh, uh, preaching this chapter into, in, in, into two parts. I just think, I, I, I didn't think we could all sustain it that long. But we could, have, we could have broken down all the depravity that's in the passage. We could study what the Bible says about abuse. Probably be a good thing to do someday. What the Bible says about how to treat women. What the Bible says about rape. What the Bible says about adultery. We could study what the Bible says about fornication. We could do a study, of course, here it's in this passage, what the Bible says about homosexuality, what the Bible says about murder. We could do that, and you get a sense of how wrong and depraved the events of this chapter truly are. But that's part of the problem in the church. Some of those sins are no longer sin in many churches today. That's the storm of sin today. Those issues are such a swirl of sin that we say, okay to fornication, but murder is still wrong. Okay to adultery, but not the abuse of women. Okay to homosexuality, but not rape. That's the point. When sin becomes more than flurries and the sin and, and, and the sin just keeps falling and the winds of your heart keep kicking it up all the time, there and there is no God. When there is no God, you can't get to the truth anymore. And then you're lost. And you can't climb your way out. And some people are walking away from Christianity because they're so confused about what is right or wrong, what is true, good and beautiful, or what is not, or what the culture said is good, or what the culture says about what is acceptable versus what the Bible says. They're so confused that some people are shakily walking away. That's the point. That's what Judges 19 is, says will happen. If, 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 if you know God, but you forget about him in these aspects of your life where you really don't want to think about him because then he might have to tell you what to do. Ultimately, as the Levite and his family head off toward home, and as they go, the logical place to stop for a hotel is in this town called Jebus, or Jabus, however you want to say that. Verse 10, it's the biggest town around. And we're even reminded, hey, this was Jerusalem. This was Jerusalem. But at the moment, it's called Jabez because then that part of the world, until the 12 tribes of Israel actually do their job and kick out the Canaanites, because the Jebusites are just a Canaanite tribe, Jerusalem is run by the Jebusites. And they've renamed the city. In fact, that's exactly why the Levite doesn't want to stop in Jerusalem. Jabez, he doesn't want to take the risk, this is kind of humorous, of being attacked or abused by pagans. People who care only about themselves and might want to steal or rob him or take his concubine or rape her. That place, he's thinking, they will not be hospitable. The pagans are not safe to be with. 
So I'll keep moving and looking on for a Jewish town, a town filled with covenant-keeping, God-fears, people who can tell good from evil, where God is remembered. He thinks that these people will line up to take them in because they know Jehovah God. But look at the picture. Gibeah is a place that has forgotten God. And they come there, they go to the town square, they're completely ignored. Nobody even notices they're there. People walk on by. In fact, the only one who does offer hospitality, who really sees them, is an outsider, a journeyman himself, an old man from Ephraim. And the man does all of these things that Simon uh, should have done for Jesus. He extends a welcome to the family. He gives them food and drink. Like the woman at Simon's house, he gives them a basin, it says there, to wash their feet. then this is when the storm really hits. Because while the early verses looked at the sin of the Levite and the concubine in particular, when sin becomes a storm, when the culture is given over to autonomous self-gratification, where God is forgotten, the death wages of sin typically pour out on its weakest members. On its weakest members. There is a sense that part of what this passage about is what sin and power together end up doing. And the, and the weakest people get crushed the fastest. It falls on, the, the sin falls heavily on women. It falls heavily on children. It falls heavily here on the old man, on the weakest. The storm hits the older man, the host, because he has to make, in a place that has forgotten God, he has to make a real-time decision. What do I do? They're pounding on my walls to rape this man. He's got to make a determination. He's got to determine what is going to be right in his own eyes. And suddenly you're, we're brought into a real-time horror show in this passage. These people outside aren't the pagans of Sodom. They're the Israelites of Gibeah. They're us. You might even see some of these people in heaven if God forgives them. This is so much worse than Sodom. But there is no God for the old man to appeal to. He can't say to them outside, don't do this because the commandment says don't do it. What does he appeal to? He appeals to culturally accepted norms of hospitality. I've taken this man and his household in. This is an ugly thing to do. So, and the, and the Bible does want you to understand that the Bible itself does know, again, no Greek chorus to tell you this, that the old man makes a sick and depraved decision. May have been a, seemed like a nice guy when he took them in, but he makes a sick and depraved decision. <clears throat> it's not just Canaanite law, but Hebrew Levitical law means that this man in verse 23, when the Israelite men are waiting outside to gang rape the man, the only way to stop any evil at all is to say, since this man has come into my house, don't do this vile thing. That's about the, all he's got in terms of morality. Not God's law, not the Ten Commandments, but just like, this just isn't done. That's all he's got. And the horror is that hospitality is about the only constraining law that anyone in a godless place where people are literally doing exactly what their eyes are telling them to do 
it's all left to all left to constrain it. Is is it's like we have today in the culture where the only ethic left is the culture of, of consent. There's no God. There's no Torah to which they can appeal. God's absent. And so he makes this evil, disgusting trade-off even to consider the giving of his own daughter and the Levite's wife. And that is when, just briefly, we have sin as a, as a weather system. You could, you could call it permanent moral climate change. As the perverted Israelite men of Gibeah keep pounding, they're pounding on the house. It's ultimately the Levite who throws his concubine out there. The woman whose who's heart, he said that he wanted to win back earlier in the chapter. Throws her out to the mad dogs, knowing full well what is going to happen to her when he does that. And it does. She is repeatedly and violently raped by a large group of men. And so Israel has finally, in the book of Judges, come to the end of itself, its most evil ends, total depravity depicted in one chapter. And, and I mean, it's fascinating the way the writer of the Judges almost freezes time. Did you notice that? He makes it so that the horror never ends. It's never allowed to end. Because did you notice? We're never told when the concubine dies. She is, narratively speaking, she's kept in a kind of moral and physical state of ongoing abuse because we're never told how it ends for her. Did she die of the abuse and the torture and the wounds of the men who raped her that night? Or did it happen earlier or later in the morning? Did she die sometime after she got to the doorway of the old man's house and, and, and collapsed and then died? Or was she unconscious when her husband comes out and tells her to get up? And she dies later when her husband cuts her into all those pieces. We're never told. It leaves the horror in stasis. It hangs there just, just so that we have to stare at it. But let's not miss that the husband had his wife raped. He is entirely complicit. And then look at how it turns into a system, into a system of self-centered, yes, worship. Because in verse 29, the Levite, remember who he is. You must not forget this. He may have forgotten God, but we can't forget who he is. He gets out his knife. Now, Levites were trained to use knives skillfully. They assisted, right, in the worship. They assisted the priests, the high priests, in preparing the sacrifice. Of course, that would be sheep, or that would be oxen, that would be goats, that would be turtle doves, not people. But that is how depraved the people of God can become when God is forgotten. And then he sends out the 12 pieces to the 12 tribes with this explanatory note. Why does he do that? Well, it's a, it's a place that's forgotten God. Verse 1 tells you, there's no king in Israel. Who's going to give him justice? It's amazing in godless places how people don't give up on justice. It's amazing in a place where you can almost do almost anything you want with your, 
body or to somebody else and just do whatever whatever you feel like doing in the world and you know uh, just, just fill your mind with all the most depraved things people still want justice so does this guy it's a judicial system he wants justice he wants a court he writes to the tribes and all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt till this day consider it Take counsel and speak. He wants a national court hearing to rule over what those disgusting men of the tribe of Benjamin in Gibeah did. Why? Verse 1, because no king rules. No king to appeal to. There are no judges. God isn't sending out, God isn't raising up judges in the book of Judges anymore. Because who exactly would he find to deliver God's people who hadn't already become like a total Canaanite at this point. There's nobody left. They've all been Canaanized. God's authority is not honored or acknowledged, and he has determined not to intercede. He's turned his people over to their own desires. There's more to be said about this woman. There's more to be said about what happened to her. There's more to say about what biblical justice looks like. Really, chapters 19 go together with chapter 20 and 21. We'll get into some of that next week. But there's only one thing that can save this situation. And the church that forgets the Lord has to know what it is can save. We cannot forget. Only the Lord himself can save a situation like this. I find it one of the most disgusting moments that we're shown here. Verse 28. Thankfully, we are not, in a sense, narratively shown the rape. But in the aftermath, where the husband stands over his wife, concubine or not, and says to her, get up. Suddenly, I want to grab a 12-gauge shotgun and put a nice blast in the husband's chest and one in the face for good measure. And that would feel tremendously good. But as good as that might make me feel, you know what? It wouldn't bring her back. And it doesn't fix anything. What we need is not this fake husband, the Levite, but what we need is a real husband, the bridegroom, who lays down his life for his beloved. You see, in a weird, we'll look at this next week, in a weird, twisted sort of way, the concubine is Israel. Yes, a sinner. Yes, she's kind of sold herself out. Yes, she doesn't have full inheritance. But she's a wife. She's a beloved. She's to be cared for. She's to be given an inheritance. She deserves better. She needs, Israel needs, we the church, we need a husband who would do anything to protect his wife, anything to save her life. The husband who went harm and sin are pounding at the door in systemic abuse in the face of a crowd, doing whatever is right in their own eyes, who will put himself, not merely between the wrath of the crowd, sex-crazed men and this woman, but between her and the wrath of God against all of sin. Somebody to do that giving himself over to scourging and death himself if need be so that his bride is spared and spotless 
because he cares for her. That's the only thing that can end a storm like this. Only the beauty of that, only the justice of that can help you see in this world what truly is right, good, and beautiful versus a storm. Sometimes you don't know. That's why you need the Lord. That's why you need Jesus. Let's pray.